Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to be speaking with Red Rushack, who was Apptentive's first sales hire nearly six years ago. He's going to share with us about how to start scaling from an independent contributor to a full-on sales team. He's also going to speak about finding your pricing models and taking your pricing off the website. Next week, we're going to be speaking with Ganesh Padmanaban. He is responsible for bringing a division of Dell to a billion-dollar company. He's going to share with us when to start with business development and how to manage your partners in the sales process and when to start to scale your sales team. We've got a great conversation with Josh today, so stay tuned. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. Hi, everyone. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to ask for your help. I want to hear your feedback about the podcast so that I could make it better and more relevant to you. Send me your thoughts or questions you would like to have answered to adam at startupsales.io or use the Get in Touch link on the website, startupsales.io. Of course, I am also available on LinkedIn. Just search for Adam Springer. Looking forward to delivering you more and more impactful and helpful interviews. Josh, thanks for joining us. Uh, Josh, I don't know who this Josh guy you're referring to is. <laughs> Do you want me to call you Red? <laughs> well, you, 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 pre, you predate the Red, so I think you have the, the permission to do it, but I don't know if the rest of the world's going to know who this Josh guy is. So. All right, so for those listening, Josh and I go way back. Uh, you know, we actually went to high school together, and it happens that we're both in te- tech sales. Uh, so he goes by Red now. So I'll try to I'll try to refer to you as Red, but I might accidentally slip and let call you Josh. This could be awkward. So Red, <laughs> eh, awkward, whatever. Red, uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, very very happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah. So <clears throat> let's uh, let's look at what you are now. You are a sell- You were the first salesperson uh, for your company. Uh, about five years ago. Is that correct? Uh, Yes, about five and a half years ago, just to be a little bit proud of the time I've been here. Good. And you have helped them raise, uh, or not raise, but bring in business of about $5 million uh, of ARR. That's correct. Yep. So what does a new startup have to do in order to start closing deals? Um, I mean, not to dumb it down but you need to just ask someone for money and if they give it to you that's that's a sale uh honestly i i I don't know where to go with this question because there are so many factors that confuse people from thinking they just don't have something that's ready to be sold so i think the minute the minute you hire a guy to say sell something i think that's the day you can sell something or even before then if you're the ceo of a company and you have something you think you can sell, you could start already start selling. So when once you have a con, you're saying once you have a concept, uh, you could start selling it. 
Yes and no. I, I've, I've seen companies sell something without even a concept, right? Um, but bear in mind, like literally they've sold vapor. I mean, this happens in the Bay Area a lot, right? Let's sign a contract on something that doesn't exist. Um, if you are really want to keep your customers year over year, if you're like a SaaS business, then yeah, you're going to definitely need something that can be replicated and uh, scaled, obviously. Okay. So when you joined your company, yeah. what stage was it in? That's a good question. Uh, so we, we started at... Um, Techstars, or we, I think the company itself got its start before Techstars, obviously. And Techstars was the accelerator that really put us on the path to saying like, okay, this is productized. We can put a pricing page up. Let's, let's uh, obviously start charging customers without even having to convince them to be part of a beta group for free. And after Techstars graduation, that's when they brought me in to say, okay, we have a pricing page. We, we know people want this thing. We have investments. Uh, let's go ahead and actually start going outbound and starting to figure out how we can increase that sale price from $50 a month to $500 a month to $5,000 a month. Okay. So how did, how did you begin this process? Uh, how, were you doing outbound or did you have leads coming in? Uh, when I first joined, it was the CEO <clears throat> as a business person and this uh, younger straight out of, you know, traveling the country on a cross country on a motorcycle, uh, you know, kid out of college that was doing content generation. Right. And so that was really the focus. Content was there to try to drive interest in, in uh, inbound. And the CEO was there constantly trying to look to make connections for outbound. So referrals for investors, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the shotgun approach, just who could we talk to about this concept? Um, so when I first started from a structure perspective, one of the first things they wanted to do was actually get a sales force or some kind of um, tracking mechanism in place so we could see where customers were coming from, right? Rather than just coming in and trying to sell, sell, sell right away, we first wanted to sit down and look at how do we want to be smart about this so that we're not shooting the shotgun too much, right? So we can get a little bit more sniper and focused. So within the first, I would say, quarter, it was setting up an environment where we could track where people are coming from. And at the same time, I was also building a script and an outbound story, right? What was that first call looking like when I call someone? What am I saying? What is the CEO saying? How can I take that and make a script out of that? So it was a lot of watching what our CEO was doing and from there, turning it into a process, right? Because he can't focus on sales. He has to also focus on product, on strategy, on investors, on board meetings. So for me, I, I was trying to bring a step-by-step -step process or flow in place to where he was just, you know, obviously trying to make ends meet. Yeah. And so a, a CEO selling is a lot different than a salesperson selling. So while you were listening to that and building the script, how did you, how did you make the difference and what changes did you make? <laughs> uh in the way that you spoke to yeah people. for everyone who's who's made it this far and hasn't hung up on the podcast this is the, this is the gold right here your ceo has a complete advantage over you in the sense that if he walks into a room or she walks into a room and says hey listen to me i have this great product they're gonna get more ears because they're the ceo if they email someone vp C-level executive, they're going to have an easier time having a conversation with that person than you who carries a sales title. So there's a script difference, right? They can have 
some liberties about what they say or how they say it because of that. But I, I will be the devil's advocate here. Just because they have an easier time having that conversation doesn't totally mean the things you're saying should be different or how you approach a conversation. Right? Just because he's the CEO and he acts all consultative in a conversation with another VP doesn't mean that consultative conversation isn't really just a sales script. So theoretically, if I go meet with a CEO or VP level executive, I'm not going to sit there and start asking spin level questions. You know, how will this make your life better in six months? You know, that that's not what I would do. I would also be consultative and have a conversation. So with that, what I was trying to do was find the differences, the nuances between him being a CEO and having that advantage. And what is a real consultative conversation look like? For those high-level people, we might be sniping or focusing, you know, really on how do we get conversations going with them. The same also happened for the PMs. It's people who are further down in the organization that were individual contributors. The CEO might go on this long rant about how he's trying to change the world and, the, you know, obviously thinking of the vision and the product. And you've got these people who've got a million people selling to them every day, and we needed to figure out a way to dumb down that pitch. To simplicity, where it wasn't trying to sell the entire vision. It was more, what is it we needed to say to that person in a quick way? And I think that's something else that you just can't always extract from a CEO that you have to, you know, take with a grain of salt. They're going to always want to sell the vision, but a lot of times the vision has to be separated out for the persona you're selling to. And I think he had an okay start to dividing up personas, but it was something that definitely needed a lot of work or at least uh, uh, playbooks. Uh, designed around that does that make sense so did you absolutely did you start uh building different scripts for different personas we tried to do our best on defining scripts for personas uh yeah what i was going to say from a from a script perspective we definitely started thinking about playbooks okay what happens if there is a marketer in the room and a product person in the room who do we focus on right which one actually for the most part gives us budget <laughs> and which one has the bigger budget and how do we unlock that budget? <laughs> oh. What happens if they throw an engineer in the room? Do you still I'll, go through I'll those slides? Out. Or are you going to lose that engineer who's the entire permission for us to integrate has to be given up by that person? So do we want to bore them with, you know, obviously slides, or do we want to shift the conversation to be more technical? So in the very beginning, we started learning from those conversations, asking ourselves after each call, each meeting, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? Why were they staring at their laptop the entire time? How could we change that? So you were doing face-to-face -face meetings then? As many as we can get, um, as you know, obviously with the budget, right? We weren't trying to travel too far. I think staying local, especially if you're a startup, trying to meet as many people you can face to face in your city is a, is a quick win. Is absolutely quick win. And then obviously going to conferences and trying to set as many meetings at those, just to save on budget, right? You can't just fly first class everywhere, and I still don't recommend doing that um, when you can have these quick wins in your own backyard. So. So uh, did you do outbound mostly? You went to these conferences uh, to get these first initial meetings? Or were you cold calling them? Oh, God, everything. I mean, in the beginning, we were trying to figure out what we thought made sense. So our, our CEO, uh, Roby, uh, uh, to our benefit, had background working with sales teams, uh, originally working at WebEx, um, seeing how they sold. So my first day, he handed me a binder. He's like, all right, here's everything you need to know about sales. And uh, we got to hit the phones. <laughs> Let's go, you know, get a headset. And I'm like, uh, you know, sure, I'll try everything. Uh, cold calling in this day and age was really a huge time suck. And I wouldn't call it a waste of time, but there needs to be some structure there. 
right? Calling into the kiss of death and trying to get past them in order to meet that person that you need to have a call with. It's, it's, it's the times have changed, right? The way you sell today and the way you scale your sales has shifted fundamentally to digital, right? How do we do a good in-mail via LinkedIn or how do we send a really well-crafted email flow? Uh, and what tools can we use to support those flows to make sure we don't let anything fall through the cracks if they don't reply? Um, so very early on, it was a mix of outbound cold uh, where we were experimenting with four or five stage strategies that involved phone calls and emails saying I left you know, an email uh, or I left a phone uh, message on your voicemail or I sending them an email just saying, hey, to be politely persistent, like I've emailed you four times and my in spam. You know, there was so much experimentation, even writing those emails you've probably seen saying, hey, you know, is anyone still alive there? Or are you abducted by aliens? Uh, you know, is it because I'm not pretty? Should I send help? Yeah, <laughs> and we've, all, we've all tried it. Those are the early days where you could get away with everything. Um, but that was outbound. Inbound, we also had to do a better job of taking people who are looking at our content on our website and creating forms for them to submit their own information, for them to maybe do a free trial. Uh, experimenting with trials to, to see if we can con get contact information early on. One of our biggest, longest, best customers signed up using a Gmail address. We didn't even know for like three months that Intercontinental Hotels Group was a customer and a paying one because they were using Gmail. It was, it was weird. It's like, wait, you know, that app, IHG, that's a real thing, but this is a Gmail address. What's going on here? So how do we avoid letting that happen again? Uh, so it, it's, it's, it's a mix. And in the beginning, how, how did you avoid, yeah, sorry, sorry. How did you avoid, uh, letting that happen again? Did you, uh, did you block Gmails? No, we didn't block Gmails. I thought Gmails was a safe way to let people at corporate companies who have like uh, policies against signing up for cloud technology. We wanted Gmail, right? Because they could still sign up using the personal account. Like we've had people at like T-Mobile or Starbucks or AT&T say, Hey, you know, I can't use my work address cause there's a, a virtual blocker but I can go incognito and use my Gmail address and, and start experimenting with you at one of my side projects, right? Or McAfee, a huge security company, right? We got our start working with uh, some guy's side project and grew into it. So we wanted it. But what we did differently is we, um, we started basically making sure everyone at the company had access to all feedback that was coming in, as well as every new sign up and creating almost like a dashboard of information that we had to look at daily of who these people were, what were they signing up with, what captured information are we getting, and how can we capture more, like title or name, but without obviously putting up too much of a gate where it turned them off, right? We didn't want to create the Salesforce form, which is like, hey, give us everything you want to get a quote uh, versus just give us your email address and you can get access because right now we're just trying to grow, you know, chicken and egg. Yeah. And how would you organize and structure this data? Uh, split between trying to get it seamlessly to flow into Salesforce and then our own admin dashboard backend where we can manage these accounts, right? Uh, just to give people context in the world, when you're running a, a, a SaaS business or a, any kind of technology business where your customers are leaning on your platform, there needs to be some kind of backend system to manage all of this that you as a salesperson can access. Um, so that you can flip on or off accounts without having to bug your engineering team each time. And with that backend system, we started getting more intelligent about what these teams or structures would look like. So I would be able to suddenly mm -hmm. see, like, this guy from Gmail invited five other people with IHG addresses, right? And I can go, oh, clearly this is IHG. <laughs> so that's, that's the kind of things we were focused on. Okay.
Now, you you spoke about earlier about the spin or consultative uh, way of engagement uh, with a client. Mm -hmm. What do you find more useful uh, and more successful? Uh, it depends. <laughs> Not to give you a crappy answer, but uh, always go with consultative or at least structured conversations where um, you're really really listening to the customer, not just running through a script. Um, but again, that's why I say it depends. If you're really early in the funnel and you're doing sales development rep stuff, right? You're an SDR, ADR, then your number one job is to get this person to do a demo. And if you're doing the volume game, then obviously who needs consultative? It's, hey, we have this thing. Are you interested in this thing? Oh, you are interested in this thing. Let's see if you actually make sense for this thing. Um, and then you'll get hung up on, you know, four times out of five, but that one, that one you get is, is your comp. Um, so there could be that volume play there where you just have a standard set of questions. You run through them until someone says, I'm interested. The consultative approach, I think for startups is a lot more valuable, especially in the early days where in every conversation you're having, you're spending more time doing discovery and asking a lot of questions, not because you want to use it as, um, as a way of sell selling them later on, but literally your product's still in the early stages. You want to see if there's new opportunities for your product to grow as well, right? You want to look for the things that your product isn't doing where there might be value to extract money from their budget, right? That's where you discover, holy crap, we, we're, we're charging them $50 when they just told me that this could be worth $5,000 to them. What are we doing? Let's continue to have these kinds of conversations to uncover those things. And you can't do that with a script, you know. Exactly. Don't, don't leave money on the table. Never. Never leave money. Oh, <laughs> you're used to paying for onboarding. Well, we do that for free. Um, maybe that's a strategy. But when you're early as a startup, you charge for everything you can. Um, you don't have to be the nice guy. Sometimes when people see you charging, they take it as a company that's serious, that will still be around, that's more likely to be the one you should invest in. Right? The more expensive player is not the one that loses. It's typically the one that wins. Strange enough. It's a uh, psychology. Everybody thinks that the more expensive item is, is better. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I, I like what you said that the, you know, spin is, is a good methodology for if you're, if you're dealing with high volumes for like SDR mm -hmm. and consultative is better for taking that from that meeting to close, uh, where you're not dealing with as many and you want to push and get as much information and that will help with the negotiation later on. Yeah, but I would, I would say that if you are a startup, I highly recommend you read Spin Selling because it will help you create a smarter script that will drive a consultative conversation. Because if you don't understand the flow that gets you to that moment, that moment they're ready to buy, you should shut up, right? You need to know when to stop talking. You need to know when to stop asking certain types of questions because you're going backwards. And you need to know how to repeat that process of like, okay, they said they want this one thing, but we're selling multiple things. How do we keep going through cycles until we get them bought into everything? You should read that book. I highly recommend it. It's an easy and cheap read. Um, and it's, it's a widely known sales um, process or set of questions that is it's respected. So not a waste yeah. of time at all. I, I think I read it a couple of years ago. It's, uh, it was a really good book. I'll put a link in the, uh, in the show notes. Yeah. People like listening to these because they're usually like not only trying to get some information from me because I'm not the expert. They want to know where I learned from, right? Who, who's my Obi-Wan, right? Who's my Ip Man? Uh, <laughs> yes, and, uh, very much. I think for me, the challenger sale uh, is good. The challenger customer is the new wave 
of again, it's just more buzzwords, but it's really it's it's the concepts of that you need to understand that will give you an edge over over your competition if you really spend time understanding like what has been tried in sales before and what is the new wave of sales today. Like what are the new things people are doing? And that's where these books could be really helpful. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. No one wants to Absolutely. reinvent the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the key thing from from all these different kinds of uh, methodologies, though, is is listening. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I think that's a it's a really key point that most salespeople skip out on. There's this new tool, Adam. You're going to get a kick from it, right? So it's called Chorus C H O R U S dot AI. Have you heard of them before? No, I have not. Yeah, we just we had a, we hired a new VP of sales uh, to our company to bring in a little bit of outside acumen. And um, one of the things that they gave to us was, hey, we use this tool called Chorus. It records your calls. And it, like, it's a great way, right, for VP sales to start. Hey, we're going to record all your calls and listen to them. Um, you know, I don't know if, if salespeople react well to that, but I'll give you the flip side, the positive side, which is that if you get some technology to record your sales calls, the benefit is that you can listen to yourself afterwards. And you can not only listen to yourself, it will tell you how long you were talking versus a prospect was talking. And it will also track keywords that they're saying. And you could also send them a snippet afterwards. So theoretically, if you're like, hey, you know, I just want to make sure you knew we had this discussion three months ago about price. Here's proof. Or maybe it's just more gentle, like, hey, share this video with other people who couldn't make the demo. But the reason I'm saying it's valuable is because you can see how much you were talking versus the prospect. You know, obviously, you want them talking more than you in their early discovery stages, but there are going to be times where they want a demo where you're going to be doing most of the talking and you need to know where in that talking you can spend time shutting up and still asking questions. So highly recommend it uh, if you're looking for reflective tools that don't involve quick time pitches to your mirror. <laughs> yeah, course.io. I'll put that in the show notes uh, as well. It, it's it it's a lot like... Uh, or dot .ai. What? Dot .ai. Oh, so. dot .ai. Sorry. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's also like uh, gong. Gong.io. They, they have a similar thing, and they also do analysis based on not just who's talking most percentage of the time. They're also looking at keywords and things like yeah. that. Yeah, I think they're competitors. I mean, God, yeah. the homepage on Goggio is hilarious. So I think <laughs> go for either, man. I haven't used them, but I'm already bought in. Look at yeah. that, guys. All right. So you brought in enterprise clients to your startup. How yeah. did you overcome the challenge of showing them you were a stable company when you were a new company? Ooh, this is a good one. Uh, okay, people in listener land, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to say this in full confidence. When I came into that meeting, I did not have any clue how to pitch a $100,000 plus deal. Let's be straight with y'all. I've done it for like not software sales one-offs in the past for other companies. But for our SaaS company where we had deals on our website for $50 or $100 a month, here was this international coffee brand that was asking us to support a large user base right and this is this was a big opportunity for us so um we had to demonstrate value for how long our company was going to be around so when i was in that meeting this person this vp executive is like hey look you probably aren't familiar with this but there is a due diligence that large companies have to do to make sure you're going to be around because if we give you our money and then you drop in eight months that money's lost. We're screwed. So convince us that. And so we had to go through uh, some due diligence that can give them confidence, but without giving away everything, right? We didn't want to give them our financials 
a lot of companies say they require that. You could say no. And I would say one out of every couple hundred enterprise clients will say they require it. Maybe one will actually have to, like, it'll be the actual blocker rather than a nice request. Uh, sometimes there's a tool where they use like a scoring mechanism for financials where they just need like a CFO to say you're doing good and get a written statement again across about that uh, or a Z score. I've seen for some international companies. But anyway, the point being, uh, that was part of it. The other part of it is they, they are also watching to see how you react um, just to see if you guys can play it cool, right? We're, we're about to ask for more than $100,000 to this company, and that was one of the first times we've ever done it. So we had to walk into the room and establish ROI on a freaking whiteboard in front of them. No paperwork, no sheets, just literally take a... a Sharpie on the whiteboard, an erasable, and map out how they're going to make money over the next 12 months. So that instead of them thinking we're going to be gone in 12 months, they were thinking, wow, these guys have identified a roadmap for success. How can they fail? Um, and so I would say come prepared with that too. You know, the crawl, walk, run, the if you throw a stone in the lake, here are the ripples. Any way you can envision how to show a 12-month timeline for them will ease that uh, a fear for them for year two or year three, theoretically. Yeah, I, uh, it's very important to, to show uh, or to explain roadmap uh, to people because it's not what you have now. It's what the possibility of what can be uh, will really pique people's interest on a personal level. And you are selling to people at the end of the day. Yes, it's a company, but because it's a person, you get them really excited about what you have and what you're going to have. You mm -hmm. could beat out your competition. Yeah, although I would never sell something you don't have without permission from your product team. And your <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> that's the first. That's the first way to lose the client. Uh, forget lose the client. Lose the lose your company. These uh, you you want your engineers to stop rallying around you. You know you're you're going to have to be very nice and not sell shit that doesn't exist. Please. Yeah. Please, God, don't do it. So how did you guys come up with your pricing? Uh, I'm licking my finger, putting it up in the air, and feeling the wind for all those who are observing it. Um, now, <laughs> you, you say that, and, and it's true. However, that comes with experience. There, there's something in your head that knew that this is a, a price point area that you were in. Yeah. Do you know there. what that was? What was in your head? Yeah. Okay. So this is a split thing. I'm going to give credit where it's due. Our CEO came from WebEx where he actually helped manage pricing. Uh, Yahoo, he did a lot of investigation into like in a, uh, cost structures uh, around advertising. And ultimately, um, his experience around pricing models was a starting point for me to go, okay, cool. You're a smart man. You've got Excel spreadsheets, but we should be figuring out how we can ask people for more money. So for us, we, we did a couple things. We built a matrix of what the competitors were charging. We looked at their models of how they were charging. And we, we didn't use it to influence us. We wanted to make sure that we were intelligent. And when we picked our model and our pricing schedule, that it made sense. And we weren't just rocking the boat too much. Right? So we started focusing on matrixes, right? You've seen this where there were five different pricing models, right? You've got your early plan, your learn, your grow, your pro, your enterprise, which doesn't have a price. And this was a big way for a long time. And then startups started not putting price on their website and just saying, hey, if you want price, you have to call us. And that was a way of driving lead capture and also seeing if someone was really serious about your product. But then there was this like, 
middle ground of people that were doing a, um, you know, they were putting maybe two prices on the website. One that everyone could see that was like, here's your stupid simple plan, sign up, like leave us alone. Oh, here's your annual rate if you sign up for a year versus paying monthly. And then uh, here's our enterprise deal. So you can see like as I'm talking, there were so many different cycles of what we can experiment with. Um, but at the end of the day, there was something that happened behind the scenes that most people don't think about, which is you have to look at your operational expenses. You have to look at if you sell a deal for 50 bucks, what's the amount of work that has to be done by engineering and your customer support team to support these customers. So it became a margin question, not just what price made sense for the, the industry, what price made sense for us. So we started looking at modeling around costs to make sure we were at 70, 80, 90% margins as a SaaS business. And uh, that, you know, obviously that there's a magic number your investors want to look at to see what does customer acquisition look like? And once you acquire a customer, what are those margins? What are your expenses? So it wasn't just about industry. It was also making sure that we were keeping a tight look at, you know, as a startup, you kind of want to give things away for free or for cheap, but is that really your best long-term strategy when it comes to convincing investors or at least trying to become a profitable company? Does that yeah. make sense? Absolutely. Did you, have you changed your pricing a lot since, uh, since in the last five years? Yes. Oh my God. <clears throat> Every time we thought we had it, someone came in and said, you can charge more and you can simplify. So we went from like five, five different pricing models to, I think now we've established on our website, there's a trial model and an enterprise model and no prices are listed publicly anymore. Um, it took four years to get there. And now once we started establishing pricing, we're now increasing it significantly by structuring what we're offering for free. So for example, you customer success, you know, usually companies want to offer support, but customer success we've identified is, is a managed service within our own company, right? Where these people are on our company are working with clients for a lot of hours, helping them do things and handholding them. Why should that not be a separate charge that goes above and beyond normal support for enterprises rather than just lumping it in for free because you're already paying an X amount. So now that's where we're experimenting next, which is, how do we charge more for our people's time when we know our people are geniuses, right? These people have worked with your competitor. So if you're a, I don't know, a Subway, and you know that we've worked with McDonald's or Starbucks or Dunkin', you know, you're going to suddenly go, well, if I work with this customer success person, how much time am I going to save just getting recipes for success? No pun intended. Um, and that to us is now a, another question we're starting to figure out. Interesting. I, I mean, I, I only want to be sensitive to what I can share. And I think, I think this is okay to share to the world, which is you work with someone like us, or at least a company who has a customer success team. You have to realize how much you're getting when you take advantage of those people. When you call them, or if you have an unlimited plan and unlimited access, take advantage of it. Most companies, when they integrate a technology, they don't talk to the company for a year. They'll just forget you exist, say you paid for it. And then when it comes time to renewal, they could fire you. That is death to companies. That is why customer success exists, is to make sure that never happens. So a lot of times it's customer success reminding these buyers we exist, but there are those handful of customers who are the opposite, who's, who wants to lean on customer success to manage the service on a regular basis. And it's those customers that you should consider thinking about, maybe we should charge more. But you've got to find the right balance because you also want to support the clients. Yeah. 
you don't want to take too much of their money. Obviously, this is a, a real world scenario where they might not have enough budget to to pay an outside consultant. They they just want the product. They want the service. Um, so yeah, you're right. It's a fine balance, but it's um it's one we do respectfully. We want to make sure that when we have honest conversations with customers, they understand what other customers might be paying and how they might have missed the boat by waiting a year. Right? It's not just a sales incentive to say you're going to be paying 20% more next year. It's likely a reality in this business as you're doing better, you can charge more. You said something that I really want to go back to because it <laughs> made, my, made me really happy. <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> you said uh, that you guys have now taken the pricing off your page. I think this is something that every salesperson wants. How has that affected your guys' business? <laughs> 10x. I mean, the minute you don't have a price on the page is the minute you can price to the value you're providing your end customer. So I'll give you a good example. Someone calls us with uh, a product, and that product size is, uh, let's just say for all intents and purposes, they have 50,000 customers. Now, this is a company that has 10 people in it. It's a startup. They're calling us to sell them something. Now, that same company with 50,000 customers is calling up because they don't know our pricing and they want to know it. So we start investigating what is the value of these 50,000 customers you have? How much are they worth to you? And then about, I'd say, uh, 24 hours later, we get another inbound through our pricing page. 50,000 customers, but it is a 2,000-person company. It just happens to be they have a smaller customer base on this new product they're developing. So they're both the same size audience that they need us to support, but one's a 2,000-person company and one's a 10-person company. I wouldn't make any assumptions. Suddenly, I find out that the 10-person company's customers are valued a lot more than this experimental app that has 50,000 customers at a 2,000-person company. Did I lose you yet, or is this making nope. sense? Uh, we're, we're with you. Perfect. So this 10-person company, you asked, let's call it $30,000 to support this product. Now this is a 10 person company. They've likely never spent, ever, never spent that much on a product before. But as a good salesperson, you convince them that you are gonna drive more subscriptions, you're gonna drive their business model, you have a direct ROI you can correlate where that fifty, thirty thousand $30,000 they're spending on you will equate to 100 grand, right? So they're getting a three to one on their buy. They're gonna invest in you and they do. That has happened with us. We close that deal with a 10-person company. But at the same time, you've got this, uh, and again, I'm not giving you the exact numbers of the size of the company or the size of their audience, but um, that same thing happened where the 2,000-person company is like, I'm sorry, we don't have budget. Our cycle's done for 2018. You're going to have to talk to us next year. And that's where you can go, whoa, whoa, actually, uh, you know, what can we do to accommodate for pricing? And so that's where you can decide if you want to bend. But because it wasn't listed on the website, you could have real honest conversations that can really uncover where the budget is and where the value is, rather than them coming in with a number in their mind. Once there's a number in their mind, they're already calculating how they can beat that number, and they're also trying to get smart about hiding information maybe about themselves so that you can't influence that number. Was that met too meta, or did I give you a good sample? No, of it was a very good, very good example. <laughs> it was a good deal, too. It was crazy. When, when, when they signed up, it, I, I gave them the honor of knowing I will not just hand them over. I will watch their account and they've already two X, you know, as a company. Wow. So it's, yeah, very we, good. We've done good. <laughs> now, are you good? Did, did you find uh, less signups for trials or less 
less people filling in your forms by taking the pricing off? At first, yes, because we didn't know how to structure the page for you know what we were getting previously. But um, we mapped our pricing model changes with um, paid advertising and experimentation around uh, driving organic growth through content. So I can't say that we saw a dip uh, because at the same time as we were making this change, we were also focused on driving more inbound. So I haven't heard anything bad about it. Let's be straight with you. No, the people who complain about not seeing price on our website, they're complaining about the treatment they got from the sales onboarding, right? That stupid automated email that, you, hey, thanks for showing interest in our product. Uh, the sales rep will follow up with you in 24 hours. And then the sales rep calls you and asks a bunch of questions and didn't provide any value in that call. That's where you got to be careful. If you're not going to list information on your website and they give you their name and email and expect something on that first call, they're going to want to hear a number. But sometimes you got to know that you shouldn't give it away that early. So you got to provide something else that's equally as valuable, right? Uh, a vision, a hope, a dream, uh, a chance that they can be happier at their job and that they're about to get introduced to a senior executive who's going to spend some time really showing them what we're all about. So I think that's a key point for, for everybody to take away that if you're going to take off the pricing, provide them value on the first call before you your SDR team passes it to the, uh, to the salespeople is it, it needs to have value uh, there. Otherwise you're going to lose them. Yeah. hundred percent. It's a sad day when someone's like emails us, what's your price? <laughs> and you're like, get on the phone. And they're like, no, not until we have price. I'm like, these companies likely from Israel, they want a discount. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you're kidding, but not a hundred percent. I'm, I'm in Israel. So <laughs> I, I know this very well. Yeah. I can make this joke people. Okay. Cause Adam's from Israel. Don't tell me. Don't, don't blow so up on Twitter. Free, free pass. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about how you guys uh, started scaling your team. Uh, on a high level, how, how did that start happening? And when did you start doing that? Uh, you're bringing a tear to my eye. That was one of the worst, most emotionally gut-wrenching parts of my early career. Um, and I'll, I'll say this. Uh, when I started, right, I'm solo. I'm running. And as I start getting overwhelmed, that's where I was pulling 100-hour weeks. And uh, I didn't care at the time. All right, it's startup mode. As a sales guy, you can't just depend on process. You got to work your butt off. It doesn't matter if it's one in the morning, two in the morning. Like if you get inspired and you need, you want to change your pitch deck or you get this idea that maybe if you email someone at five in the morning or leave a message to the East Coast, like we're a West Coast business, it was just a lot of that. And after about a year, I, I got to a point where I was like, no, 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 I really can't do more. And so I literally was in a booth with my CEO and CTO crying. Like, guys, I just can't. Like you need to let me hire someone. We need to bring someone in on sales. And they're like, no, you need to get more efficient. And it was, it was just back and forth, like a fight because I wanted help, but we were a startup and they were right. You have to focus on becoming more efficient before you scale your sales team. Because if you create bad habits and then you hire someone else, uh, there's a fear that you're throwing your money into maybe stirring the pot a little too much when you haven't really established the process. I think the place that made the most sense where we finally, I was able to bring someone in is when we decided, okay, Red, Red can be an AE. We need to bring in someone who can maybe help with the lead gen aspect of it. So think about it. I'm handling the entire funnel. That means I have to garner a lead. I need to nurture that lead. I need to convert them to an opportunity. 
I need to then do all the things that opportunities require to get to that point where we're doing red lines. And then I need to become a contract negotiation expert. Oh, and then once they close, I need to become really good about handing them off to customer success. Oh, wait, we don't have customer success. That's right. You're the sales guy managing them as well. Oh my gosh, they want an upsell. At a certain point, you see how there's something that needs to break in there where you're losing people. So we, we were losing people uh, in the sense I wasn't following up with at the top of the funnel. And we were also losing people at customer success level. So at that point in time, my CEO looked at it and goes, okay, Red, you're good. We're, gonna, we're not going to fire you. You've been a year and a half, like you're showing numbers. It's time that you, we, we bring in someone top of funnel and end of funnel to support you so you can focus on the mid funnel. And when I say end of funnel, I mean, after you close a deal, there's still the idea of retention. So we don't see a closed deal as end of funnel. That's just the beginning of the, you know, the retention stage. So that's where my CEO finally, we first found an SDR. He, he became our lead gen guru. And then ultimately he ended up becoming an AE with me. Uh, and then we hired another SDR. And the same thing goes at the end of the funnel. We brought in a CSM, a customer success manager, who uh, started to expand her team when she started reaching capacity. Don't hire a VP of sales before you have <laughs> a sales team. Um, don't drop, you know, 120000 $180,000 on some guy out of Oracle or HP with a great track record when you don't even have your sales process established. Like, this is a startup. You can't afford that. You don't even know what your process is going to look like in the year. So why throw all your money down that tube? Absolutely. Well, Red, <laughs> you, you've covered a lot and you, you really, really shared uh, some good insight here. And I think there's a lot of key takeaways for people to take. I have one more question from you uh, before we wrap things up. Sure. You, you founded uh, two different communities, uh, Startup Seattle and, and New Tech Seattle uh, in Seattle. Yeah. Obviously. Mm -hmm. um, one of which was acquired by, uh, by the city of Seattle. What in those groups, uh, what were some of the biggest challenges that you saw people coming and speaking about uh, as far as sales? Yeah, we, we hear a lot of complaints at these startup events um, and start community groups. They're, they're always selling, like always. They're, they're standing in front of me and they're pitching me their idea. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not someone who's going to buy the product, but they're sitting there practicing their pitch. I think the, the, the thing I've learned a lot from these community events, it's amazing when they come into the room and that's all they want to do is network and practice their one-liners, practice their elevators, practice their pitch. But the thing that I kept hearing from a lot of these people is that they were trying to make events become their lead gen, right? And I kept telling them, like, you guys are crazy from an ROI time perspective. Like, if you don't come into an event with a strategy or structure, this isn't going to become a lead gen tool for you. This is going to become, you know, three hours where you're just hoping to serendipitously run into the right person. And it works. You will. But uh, is that really how you want to spend your time? I think if you're going to think about events and you're going to go and complain about an event, it's because you didn't either take full advantage of who's on the list. How do I get that list? How do I email those people? How do I assume some people are going to go there and just fire it off away? How do I convince people to go and meet me at these events? Um, you know, when we were throwing these, at least from a sales perspective, uh, we, we were hoping people would just serendipitously drive that culture. And it's, it's something that I continue to have to advise people on, especially our sponsors, uh, Adam. They would get on stage. like They pay us like $500 to $1,000 to stand on stage to say something about their company. And it was like the audience would just lose their mind as these people were boring them on stage. It's like, you spent $1,000 to get up here and pitch. Did you even ask a couple of people in the audience, like, 
how to craft your message? Did you get feedback about it? Um, so yeah, I think that the, the biggest thing is people don't really think about event strategy. Um, they end up wasting a lot of time and then trying to justify it. I have two kids and a wife at home. I'm not going to spend any wasted time outside of the office when I'm going to these events if it means I can't have dinner with my family. So if I'm going to go to an event or if I'm going to travel to one, I'm going to come prepared. I'm going to know everything I need to know about that event and get every contact information I can before I go so I can really make the most of it. That's my advice to y'all. Don't waste your time with events unless you're ready to go 100,000%. I think I would take it even a step further as uh, if you're preparing your pitch for the event and this goes with the same with an email or your, your elevator pitch or whatever you're going to say on the phone is, would you listen to it yourself? And if the, if the answer is no, you got to be honest with yourself, but if the answer is no, then don't do it yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Avoid, your avoid buzzwords too. Uh, please God pitch, pitch like you're pitching to a kindergartner or at least to your mom. Uh, right. My mom still thinks I build apps. Mom, I don't build websites or apps. Stop telling me to fix your laptop. I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> what does one have to do with the other? I can't, I don't know anything about printers. Shit. I don't yes. use one anymore. Stop killing trees. You bastard. <laughs> Good. Red, thank you very much for joining us. Is there a way for uh, people to reach out to you? Yeah. So um, if you want to get a hold of me, there are two simple ways. One is redrussack.com, R-E-D-R-U-S-S-A-K.com. The other is obviously LinkedIn. Like if you're on this podcast right now and you're not using LinkedIn um, as a sales person to person, I'm just going to tell you, get on LinkedIn, find me, like me. I will accept you if you're not some random research company from India trying to scrape my data. I will most likely accept you if you're not a lion, right? One of those LinkedIn open networkers that just wants to get those numbers. Um, you can ask me questions. Please don't hesitate. Please don't like fear. I'm going to, I'm going to respond. I'm, I'm a human. I'm real. Just don't spam me. If you spam me, I will find a way to throw you into a drip for a spam email. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we, you don't want people to come and practice their pitch with you? you. You can practice your pitch as long as you open the email with, I'm practicing my pitch. What do you think? Even if that's a sales tactic, I'll respect it more than you just going for it. Don't go for it. I ain't going to buy it. I don't have budget, guys. There it is. I don't have budget. Why are you talking to me? I'm your, I'm your cheerleader. <laughs> there you go. You just shut everything down. Yeah. All right, Red. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. To contact Adam about consulting services or speaking engagements, visit StartupSalesPodcast.com or email StartupSalesPodcast at gmail.com. All right, Red, let's uh, finish things up with uh, the final five. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Spin Selling. Spin Selling. Yeah, Spin Sales. Good. Yeah. And do you f who do you follow uh, or, or read for sales and leadership ideas? God, that's a good one. Um, uh, first, first of all, Tim Ferriss. I don't think it's just about sales, but I, I just like uh, the way the man builds processes and just Overall, um, the way he digs into different topics around sales is great, but he's not a sales leader by any means. Um, it's just the concepts there are pretty, pretty cool to see. Um, God, you know, you caught me red-handed here a little bit because I find my sales information more sporadic rather than just following one leader. Um, there is one individual I would say that has inspired me from a marketing automation perspective, and he's actually one of the main reasons I'm in sales. Uh, his name is Matt Hines, M-A-T-T-H-E-I-N-Z. Um, 
as technology has shifted to support salespeople, he has been at the forefront of really understanding and just empathizing with it. And uh, I've learned so much and I don't want him to hear this because I think his ego will go up just a little bit. No, I'm kidding. He's, he's a good guy. But uh, Matt Hines is someone I, I will follow and look at content for and just really pay attention to and even recommend companies to if they're looking for help with marketing automation as it relates back to sales. Now, you hinted towards this earlier, uh, this next question. Are you available 24-7 or do you have strict uh, personal time boundaries? Uh, personal time boundaries, um, but there's a price with that. If you want me to walk away from personal time boundaries, you're going to pay for it. And I say it in the nicest way possible. So if theoretically you're a million-dollar deal, I will first approach my family and give them the first take at it. Hey, do you, are you comfortable with me working at 7.30 or 8 o'clock after the kids go to bed? It's a permission-based system. And I won't do that for anyone because you got to play your cards right. It's, it's an earned trust between my wife and I. I don't want to bring the laptop to bed. I don't want to bring the phone into the bedroom and do work. Um, God help you salespeople in the world when you have a relationship with someone else and yet you're being torn apart with work trying to balance those deals at home when it's after hours. You got to figure that out and set up some clear ass boundaries for yourself. And if someone wants to break those, you need to do a cost benefit analysis of that time that you're spending away from your family. Oh, and by the way, weekends, no work, sorry. Friday night to Saturday night, don't even bother. My phone is off. I do a tech Sabbath, you know, borrowing from my Jewish heritage. I will not look at my phone or do any work short of maybe having some whiskey at Temple and talking business with the local community folk. Uh, I will not strike a deal. I, I don't care how big the deal is. You can't make me do it. I think you're the, the only person I've actually spoken to that's very, very strict at this uh, personal boundaries and absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, so it's good. I, I'm the same way. The, the, weekend is, the weekend is the weekend and you're not going to get me either. It's holy. It's, in Israel, it's cool. Like on Friday, I will expect not to talk to anyone. They won't respond to my emails, but Sunday they're blasting me. <laughs> it's like, wait, don't, we don't share the same weekend, people. <laughs> <laughs> good. What is your uh, favorite tool that you use for sales? Ooh, God, this is good. Uh, hmm. uh, uh, outreach. Yeah. Outreach? Yeah. Why, why do you sound so hesitant to, uh, to say that name? <laughs> it, it's, um, it's not hesitant to say the name. I, I use tools like Yesware, right, in the past, mm -hmm. and, and we looked at SalesLoft. Um, I was hesitant to say outreach because as a salesperson, it's not just one tool. There's a bunch of things you got to use. Salesforce is not my favorite because I love it. It's my favorite because it's necessary as a way of, like, remembering how many people you talked to and what you did. So, like... When you ask me my favorite tool, I, I wish I could give more than one. Can I give more than one? Is that kosher? Um, there, there you go. go. Go ahead. All right. You've got approval. Salesforce, Outreach, and um, there's a tool called LinkedIn. <laughs> Sales Navigator is built into LinkedIn as for salespeople. And uh, I, I highly recommend um, you know, the pairing of the three. One's intelligence, one's storing your intelligence, and one's is driving your outbound emails. Um, so yeah, I would pair the three up. Dangerous combo. Salesforce, Outreach, and LinkedIn. That's right. Good. Last question. What, is, uh, what one piece of advice do you have for all the founders, CEOs, and, and sales leaders? Uh, one piece of advice to the founders is you don't want to hire the smartest salesperson in the room if you're looking at your first salesperson. What you want to hire 
is the most relentlessly enthusiastic cheerleader, someone that is devoted not so much to being the best salesperson, but someone who is devoted to sticking through it with your company because they're going to get shat on by so many people that don't want to buy your product. And that doesn't mean they're a bad salesperson. That means they're establishing a product market fit for you. And it takes a lot of just positivity and emotional steadiness that you can either pay a buttload to some experienced VP of sales and throw your money in that direction, but you will not get that level of really, it's not, you can't buy that. You can't pay for that. You have to get lucky and, and smart and strategic to find that kind of person that will stick it through thick and thin and will end up becoming your company's cheerleader. Um, that's what you want. And I, I was told that in the early days of my career and I use that advice and I would say I'm as successful and happy as I am because I followed that motto. And I'm thankful to say that, you know, this is something I've seen work out for a lot of friends of mine who are hiring and looking for uh, the same kind of salesperson. Excellent. Red, thank you very much. You really welcome. appreciate you joining us. Love you guys. Love the world. Just keep selling. <laughs>